record. Like it? Good. Nobody say anything to me afterwards till I've checked that it's off. <laughs> I work in the cathedral where you go out and you take off your costume and if you're not careful your random remarks are broadcast through the cathedral. Not, not a good look. We're very careful but the horror is there that one day will go wrong. <coughs> Alright, let's pray. We thank you Lord for your word and your glory. And we pray that now we would hear your word and that you would teach us about your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, on last weekend, I went to see the movie Silence, based on a book by Shusaku Endo, which I read afterwards, not my normal pattern, but it's how it worked out. Many of you will know that it's about the persecution of Christians in 17th century Japan where there were 300 or perhaps 400,000 Christians before the persecution, but they were required by the regime to trample on an image, a Christian image, um, in order to avoid being tortured or killed. Um, many trampled, but many resisted. And they were tortured or killed by being, uh, having boiling water poured over them, by being hung upside down over a pit, by being crucified, thrown into the sea, decapitated. It's also the story of the last days of the Jesuit mission in Japan and of a small group of Jesuits who were tempted to deny Jesus and part of the story is about how they reacted to the suffering of the Japanese Christians. Martin Scorsese, as the credits rolled at the end, had put a Latin tag under his name he used the Jesuit motto, obviously he was really walking with the story of the Jesuits. Uh, the Latin tag is Ad Majorum Dei Gloriam, which in English, for the greater glory of God. The Jesuits in every area of their life, not just their singing and their worship, but in their education, in their evangelism, in their care for the poor, in their godly living, strove to make everything that they did for the greater glory of God. Nothing was too small to consider the greater glory of God, to honour God. Well, our topic today is God's glory alone. And we have our own Latin tag, the Reformation Latin tag, uh, soli deo gloria. And ours means glory to God alone. And I'm not going to go into the difference between those two things. I'm going to begin with a little whirlwind tour on glory in the Bible. Then have a look at alone go into Jeremiah, then come back to glory alone. Well, glory in the, in the Bible uh, begins in Genesis, but it's all human glory in Genesis. Uh, refers to Abraham's riches and Jacob's riches and to the honour given to Joseph, human honour. But when we get into Exodus and beyond, we see what we're looking for. If you were here yesterday with Andrew, you'll be already a full bottle on the glory that was at Sinai in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, in the, te in the temple, that came um, you know, into the temple that left in the beginning of Ezekiel and was seen coming back again in Ezekiel 43. If you're a New Testament student, you probably haven't got to John's Gospel in the introduction yet, uh, if you ever do, but we see in John 1.14, um, John says, we have seen his glory as he tabernacled among us, as Andrew pointed out yesterday. So we see the glory of God, this presence of God, the glory of God as the presence of God in Jesus. 
And then in Revelation 21, uh, particularly verse 23, we see that in the city at the end, there will be glory. Um, there won't be light because the glory of God is the light and the Lamb is the glory. So here we have these sort of ideas of the glory of God as the presence of God. There's another theme which we're probably more familiar with, the recognition of people of God. So we glorify God, that, that idea. Um, we also see that with creation. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 29, give to the Lord the honour due to his name. Psalm 96, one of many people's favourites, declare his glory among the nations. So we've got glory of God as the presence of God. We've got the glory of God as honouring God. And we have God's inherent dignity. Psalm 96 again, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Isaiah 6, his glory fills the whole earth. So human glory, presence of God, God's inherent dignity and honouring God. Let's look at alone. When I think of God's glory alone, I think of Isaiah, um, chapter 42 and 48, where God says, I will not give my glory to another. It says exactly the same words twice. How much fun is that? Well, when I think about this, I think of a lonely God up there all by himself with a lot of glory. And, if, and it, but both, both of these um, parts of Isaiah are about not sharing with idols and then these little angry idols, you know, trying to get some glory. And then down here, us worshipping. That was a movie reference. Um, but that's not the picture for the ancient world. God by himself and his glory, a few people scrabbling on the outside and a few little pitiful people waving from the bottom. In the ancient world, they were very corporate, as we all know, not so individualistic, and they had a lot of experience of royal courts, whether they'd actually been or they just heard about it. In Daniel, the vision of God's glory is, includes 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's 100 million, in case you can't do the maths very quickly. 100 million angels hanging out with God, right? So his glory is alone, but he's got 100 million admirers, if you like, in the court. And anybody familiar with an ancient um, court would know, you could perhaps imagine yourself as the king of Assyria, or the king of Babylon, or the queen of Sheba, queen of Egypt, if you like to go a different way. Surrounded by satraps, you know, marshals of the army, um, kings who are subject to you, perhaps some kings who are subject to and rebellious, and then you'd have them under your feet and be using them as a footstool. <laughs> and then you'd have, you know, your subjects, and then you'd have your army, and then you'd have your, you know, your poor people, like out and out and out. Millions and millions and millions of people, and the bigger king you were, the more people you had under you, and the more glory you got because you were the, you know, the high king of a really, really, really big place. More people depending on you. More people that you could get glory by rescuing them. More people that you could get glory by protecting them. So you were seen as a really fantastic king and protector and people could trust in you and you would be able to carry out what they want and get more glory. A reliable and benevolent king. So we're sure that God doesn't want to see any glory apart from him with the idols. But he doesn't want to be alone in his glory. He wants, you know, worshippers and he wants people depending on him. That's part of how he gets his glory. 
which is just in a fragment that's between those two references, I will not give my glory to another. It's two of those, and in between, Isaiah 43, 7 says, Bring my sons from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. So he's looking for these worshippers within his determination not to share his glory with anyone else. So it might help us to think about being on Team Yahweh rather than God by himself and us kind of hovering in some sort of grotty, grotty little outside courtyard admiring him. There's no glory apart from our God. But he doesn't want the glory to be just by himself. So let's have a look at Jeremiah 17 and what that helps us to see, particularly about this client-patron relationship or king and subjects, however you want to look at it. It begins with some um, general wisdom-like comments that you could find in Proverbs or other wisdom books. It's quite like Psalm 1, for those of you who've um, seen part Psalm 1 before. Um, and we begin um, with the bad guy, as we do in Psalm 1. Cursed is the man who trusts, or cursed is the one, it says here, cursed is the one who trusts in man, in, in human beings, and draws strength from mere flesh. And the idea here where it says draw strength, it's, it, it actually says his right arm is in flesh. So the right arm of God is the one, you know, he went with a mighty, whatever it is, in an outstretched arm, that's this thing, the much, mighty outstretched arm. So um, when a king goes out to war, you know, he takes his mighty outstretched arm. So here, it's saying if you're trusting in someone's mighty outstretched arm that is not God, the news is not good for you. He says that person who's not putting their trust in God but in someone else's probably political power because we're seeing the Assyrians and the e Egyptians as a, as a big um, contrast to God in the book of Jeremiah. Such a person will find themselves like a bush, like a scungy little bush in the wastelands, um, be parched, salty, uninhabited, they won't see good. By contrast, in verse 7 and 8, we see the person who does put their trust in God, who does take God as his sovereign. This person has confidence in God, and that's still the trust word. It's like three times in this section. He'll be like a tree, not a scungy little bush. He'll be next to the water. He'll have stream, green leaves, fruit, and he won't fear when the heat comes. He won't have any worries. Then we have another little piece of wisdom kind of comment, that God searches the heart and, record and rewards. It actually says, according to the fruit of their deeds. So again, playing back on that idea of the blessed being fruitful, the one who trusts and the other people not having any fruit. And then it has this interesting little bit about the partridge. Well, presumably the partridge's wife, or I don't know if this, I think it's a man partridge by the verbs. So the, 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 the man partridge's wife presumably had some baby partridges or there wouldn't be any partridges in the universe, right? So somewhere at home, there are baby partridge eggs and I guess he left his wife to look after that. But he went off and sat on somebody else's eggs. He kind of, you know, got on somebody's eggs and he's like cooking these other people's eggs. And this story tells us that eventually the eggs will turn into little bird somethings, whatever they were, and fly away. So what was, what was he doing sitting there, you know, on somebody else's eggs that wasn't really bright? And I think um, in the context, it's talking about 
um, the Jewish kings who were putting a lot of trust in riches from other people, not from God. So they're like cooking someone else's eggs, but eventually the riches just go back to Egypt or Assyria and you're left having sat a long time on an egg that gave you no fruit. Verses um, 12 and 13 bring us to some very Jeremiah language. The first bit, a glorious throne, exactly those words are found in um, chapter 14. And you might not be very excited, but if I tell you that the word glory only appears five times in Jeremiah, you could get a little bit more excited. So this is one of, of five times, and in one of the other examples, we get exactly this phrase, glorious throne. And interestingly, in that um, section in chapter 14, it's set in a time of drought. So that's, um, you know, we've got all this stuff about, you know, if you don't trust in God, it'll be like a drought for you. And they're actually in a physical drought, which is quite interesting. And also the contrast there as well is about not trusting in idols, not trusting in others. There's another um, very strong connection um, in the second part of the verse where it says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust in the second part of 13, because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And those words, they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water, almost an exact quote from chapter two in the passage which you might know quite familiarly as where God says, you've abandoned me, the spring of living water, and you've gone off and dug cisterns for yourself, and they're broken cisterns, they're no use. And in that case, he refers to the politics. Um, you go and drink water from the Nile, from Egypt, which was one of their alliances they were trying to make, and from the waters of Assyria. So he's contrasting their idols, politics, and people's hearts. In this passage as well, this part, we see the beginning of the playoff of glory and shame. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Probably um, God's glorious throne, probably up, not just in the temple. Um, in some passages, the temple's actually God's footstool. So they didn't think that God was just trapped in the temple. That's, a, that's not a Bible idea. That's a made-up thing from other people. Um, but the place of our sanctuary is probably the temple. So there's a connection there between God's real throne and um, the sanctuary where he deigns to put his feet like, you know, the kings were putting their feet on the enemies. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. In the verses 14 to 18, Jeremiah starts applying this to himself. He says, I, me, or my, 16 times in the Hebrew. There's not quite as many in English because it would make horrible English. But he really turns the focus on himself. Before this has been, bless this person, bless that person, but now look at me. Now, at the beginning, we've been heard that the person who trusted in the Lord, whose confidence was in him, wouldn't have any worries. They wouldn't fear when the heat comes. But when we come to Jeremiah, he's full of worries. He's full of worries in this section 14 to 18. He's worried about um, disaster. He's worried about shame. He's worried about destruction. He's worried about terror. He's experiencing taunts as people are taunting him. So let the word of the Lord come. He's been preaching perhaps for 23 years by this time. We're not quite sure when this is set in the story of Jeremiah, but it's, it's placed here in the book. So maybe for up to 23 years, he's been saying, you know, watch out, watch out. And they're saying, look, we're sick of hearing this. Let it come, which was bit silly because it did come 
but they were treating him as if he was a false prophet. We know he'd had death threats in chapter 11. We know he starved in prison, that he was put in the stocks, probably partly because he'd taken a yoke to demonstrate that God was going to put them under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. So they said, oh, we'll put him in the stocks, that'd be funny. And then he said, don't trust in empty cisterns. They said, oh, that'd be funny, let's put him in an empty cistern. He was in mud up to his armpits in a cistern that didn't hold water as perhaps a little bit of a playoff against his preaching. At the end of his life, he was kidnapped and carried off to Egypt, completely against his will, completely against what God said that he should do. And we begin to wonder, are we seeing a breakdown of God's um, patron-client relationship with Jeremiah? He's promised him that if you trust in me, you'll be like the tree and you'll have the fruit and you won't be worried. And here's Jeremiah worried and perhaps he's having fruit, but he's certainly not having a lovely lot of flourishing and, and comfort. Well, as we reflect on this, I think it's helpful to turn to Luther's theology of the cross. This is because it's the Reformation year, Reformation 500, so let's see what Luther can help us with. In the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518, Luther distinguishes between the theology of glory, which is something that you do with your rational mind, so you look at the situation, you think, oh yes, God's so glorious, so I should be so glorious, and the theology of the cross. And he says, when you become a theologian of the cross, you don't just use your rational mind to try and work things out, but you have to look at Jesus because Jesus is the one who is revealing what God is like. He says that when we try and see God's glory as Moses did, show me your glory, I pray, God seems to say to us, excuse me, you can just see my back. And I don't know what Moses saw, but Luther says, seeing the back of God is seeing suffering and seeing the cross. Now, this is quite biblical, isn't it? In John's Gospel we read, now is the Son of Man to be glorified, and it's as Jesus is going to the cross. We read in Philippians 2, Jesus was humbled, despising the shame, but then he was exalted and received the name that is above every name. Luther actually cites Old Testament in support of his ideas. He says from Isaiah 45, uh, 15, that God is Deus absconditus, the God who is hidden, you are a God who hides himself, um, says Isaiah in um, chapter 45. And Luther says in another place that God hides himself in a cloak of suffering. So the glorious God is like inside, but we can't see him. What we see is God in a cloak of suffering. I hear a lot about God clothed in his promises, which is good too, but God clothed in suffering. And in another place, he talks about God's alien work of judgment. So God's proper work is salvation and healing, all the things we like to think about. But God also has alien work, not the work he normally ought to do, but the work sometimes that he has to do. So we've been thinking firstly about glory, that God's glory is found in his presence, in our true recognition of him, and in his inherent dignity. We've thought about how there's no glory apart from God, but God doesn't want to be alone in his glory. But now Jeremiah's words and his life and Luther's thoughts have invited us to take a further look at glory and shame. As we see the Lord of glory, who suffered terror and suffering, disaster, crucifixion and even exile from God. 
So glory and shame are becoming redefined in the life and death of Jesus as God's glory is truly seen in the man on the cross. In the book of Jeremiah, we see God wrapped in his cloak of suffering, weeping copious tears, there's lots of tears in Jeremiah for his poor people as he carries out his alien work of judgment on Israel. Jeremiah's words in chapter 17 invite us to put our trust in God. Blessed is the one who puts his trust in God, wherever it might lead, because that trust is an essential part of giving glory to God. That's what God is looking for, that trust. But Jeremiah's life, like the life of those, Jer of those Japanese Christians, gives us an example of enduring shame, terror, suffering and perhaps a disgraceful death for the glory of the one on the throne who is clothed in suffering. Paul also helps us to see how our path through shame and suffering to glory is seen. In Philippians 3 um, from verse 18 to 21 he says many live as enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control will tr transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. May our lives and our deaths be for God's glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.